You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And uh, jury processes have not changed much in 100 years, but jurors have changed dramatically and are increasingly using Google to research trials and look up information. This is a global problem, and in the UK, jurors have actually been jailed for conducting their own detective work. Uh, Dr Jacqueline Horan has investigated this issue in Australia and has some ideas for how we can deal with tech-savvy jurors, and it's really great to have you with us, Jackie. And I wonder, I mean, just to get us started, what are the, the rules around internet use for jurors? Is it something that they're allowed to continue to use when they're on a jury trial? No, and that's the problem because uh, it's fundamental to a fair trial that the decision maker makes the decision on the evidence provided to them during the trial so that the defendant knows what they're up against, the prosecution knows what the uh, jurors are um, making their decision based on the judge knows everyone's on the same got the same information and as soon as you get people jurors going outside the courtroom and doing their own research you can't you don't know where um you know stuff on google comes from maybe it comes from a tech savvy defendant that wants to spin you a few lies <laughs> that's really interesting so but we, i mean i suppose we use the internet well i do and most people do for everything from paying bills to looking up news um to engaging with friends on social media and the like so if i was on a jury would i need to curtail any of that um of that normal behaviour or is it really just explicitly searching for stuff um, that has to do with the, with the trial that I might be on? Is that what the problem is or do I actually have to start to unhook myself from, from the internet while I'm on a, on a jury? It's really hard, particularly if you've got a high-profile case for jurors, not to avoid front pages where the case might be reported. So it's getting more and more difficult. They turn on their, you know, front google page or whatever and the the news headline is the case they're on so it's it's so difficult for jurors in many ways apart from the fact that it's just instinctive for um the younger jurors which are now the majority of jurors so 18 to 48 year olds are now the majority of the jurors serving and they're the guys that have grown up in digital classrooms you know they ask questions they look for it on google they facebook a friend to find the answer and then they might ask their teacher but um, the judges and the senior barristers that are running these jury trials are all from a different generation where technology isn't just part of their instinctive nature so there's a real clash of culture going on so when the these di- digital young digital native jurors get into a courtroom all they get is words words and more words they're bored and they find it really hard to take on information so much information just verbally um so we're trying to look at ways of um getting uh, different ways of communicating with uh, the new generation of jurors that are coming along. And I'd imagine for, for a lot of jurors that um, engaging in uh, sort of research online can come from uh, the best of intentions, that they take their role very seriously, they want to make sure they get their decision right. Um, what sorts of uh, instances are there where jurors have been pulled up on, on researching particular things? Has it been quite explicit in what they're researching or can it even be quite broad? It could be quite broad and what we know is that the majority of jurors now are highly educated and they're very earnest. They want to make the right decision so they want to be able to 
answer the questions that they've got going on in their mind when they're listening to the evidence. So a very common one which just happened last week, a juror looked up the phrase beyond reasonable doubt. What does it mean? Um, this happens, uh, we've, we know about this happening um, because it's been reported but we don't know a lot about what's happening because um, the jurors are told that it's a criminal offence if they go online. Now some of the jurors hear that and some miss it in the midst of everything else that they're told. <laughs> so we've got to make that very clear to the jurors that if they go online it's a criminal offence and they could be in Victoria fined thousands of dollars and even in Queensland and New South Wales they can be jailed and this has happened in the UK where jurors have been jailed. And, and it can also um, have implications for the criminal justice system more broadly in terms of potentially causing a mistrial. Yes and that's the the message that we've got to get through is if you go online and you look up information and um, the court finds out about it um, you're letting down your fellow jurors you might be committing a crimi criminal offence, but you're also probably requiring the trial to be stopped and a new trial starting, which is incredibly expensive. It's thousands of dollars a minute to run these trials. And furthermore, um, very stressful for the witnesses to have to go through it again and for the defendant to have to go through it again. So there's so many reasons why uh, we need to make sure that the juries know and understand why it is that they can't go online to try and do their best they need. And one of the suggestions for me is, well, why can't they just be asking the questions of the judge instead of Google? And also, I mean, what is the issue with, with um, looking up a definition for beyond reasonable doubt, Jackie? They might get the wrong definition. Mm -hmm. So the definition <laughs> they need to be using is from the court. So they either haven't quite comprehended the definition or they're not comfortable to ask in the court, what do you actually mean by beyond reasonable doubt? Or they're not getting an explanation that satisfies their needs or whatever. So then they feel like they need to go and look it up and, and get another opinion or something. Is that is that the concern? That's right. And you, you're spot on when you said they're not comfortable asking questions in the courtroom. We... Um, surveyed almost 300 Australian jurors in 2012 and we said did you have any questions that you wanted to ask the experts in the trial and a quarter of the jurors said that they did want to ask questions but most of them didn't so we asked them why and the two main reasons why were I was worried that I wouldn't be allowed I didn't feel comfortable asking questions and the second reason was I didn't know I could ask questions so there's two things that we can improve on. We can give them clear instructions and the second idea is to make them more comfortable in the courtroom so they feel more comfortable about getting their questions away from Google and back into the courtroom. And the jury system has such a long history, um, kind of um, coming along in line with the evolution of democracy and, and the justice system. Have there been many reforms over the years in the way that the jury system works and the types of information that, that juries have and the rules governing them at all? Uh, the jury system does change with the times. Um, the first jurors were actually the neighbours of the parties in the case and they knew all about it. They were witnesses as well as jurors. Mm. Now in the 20th century and now the 21st century our idea as fairness is that the decision maker is impartial and isn't influenced by prior information. So we've got that um, 
really important um, basis of an impartial decision maker being fair but now we've got Google and we've got the internet and this tidal wave of information around our decision makers, it's very hard to isolate them from all that information. So we've got another challenge. And I kind of um, wonder as well about um, any influence of kind of true crime dramas and documentaries on the jury process because, um, you know, things such as serial making a murder have been hugely popular and people kind of conducting their own independent investigative work. Do you think that at all has, has been a factor in juries perhaps being uh, inclined to, to do some research around trials and try to, I don't know, I suppose act as the detective in, in the case that they might be on? Yeah, look, juries do love their CSI crime shows and uh, we asked them about it and they told us that they watch on average an hour a week. Um, but we didn't see any differences in the way that the CSI mad jurors behaved and the other jurors they're all earnest and they're all very and you know they they want to do the right thing and so they are prepared to put all that american science show stuff to one side and really listen to what the judge tells them that they should do um, Jackie Horan's been uh, doing some research on, well she's a jury researcher at the University of Melbourne and I wonder um, Jackie when reading through um, your sort of report on, on the research you've been undertaking uh, is it really more incumbent on the courts to change and, and make it easier for, for jurors to feel fully satisfied that they've got the information they need in the courtroom rather than punishing individual jurors who, as you say, are more often earnest and trying to do their best and are really going to the tools that they've used their whole lives. Um, do, do we need the courts to take the responsibility here to um, assist, I suppose, rather than punishing jurors for doing what their their kind of innate urge is. Yeah, I don't. I personally don't think punishing jurors is a good idea. Um, jury duty is a civic duty. It's like voting; you have to do it. And it seems to me really unfair that you could be exposed to a criminal offence for doing it. So I don't think it works. Um, to punish people. I also don't think it works because your fellow jurors, Australians don't like to dob on each other. So it kind of relies upon somebody else dobbing on you to the court um, for it to be found out. And I just don't think that's a good practical reason. But the courts are um, looking at these issues constantly and um, trying to look at ways of improving it. And the Victoria's um, jury Directions Advisory Group uh, in July have got a pilot program where they'll be given the jurors written jury directions which will complement the oral instructions that the judge gives at the beginning of the trial. And the idea hopefully is that these jurors will take away this piece of paper which explains that they're not allowed to go online and instead of reaching for their digital device, they'll reach for the written direction and, and can see that they're not supposed to do it and why they're not supposed to do it. And hopefully they'll won't go and search on the internet, but they'll take their question back to the judge in the courtroom. And I just want to clarify again, when you say you can't go and search on the internet, you mean about that trial in particular or about anything relating to your role as a jury. You can still use the internet for other purposes. Is that... Is that That's right? That's right, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, you don't want to, as some jurors have done, create polls on uh, the guilt or non-guilt of the, the defendant in your trial. Um, that's, those sorts of behaviours aren't um, 
uh, appropriate either because it doesn't give the perception of a fair trial if a juror's doing that. So you don't want to talk to your friends about what's happening in the trial at all, and most jurors are really good about doing that. And some practices can, can easily be picked up upon, such as if you're, you know, putting a, a poll out on, on Facebook about the guilt or otherwise of um, the person involved in a trial that, that you're on. But I imagine it's difficult to, to uh, you know, fully know whether jurors are using the internet. How have they been caught in the past? Well, most of them won't be being caught because Australians don't like to dob on their fellow jurors when they're all in there trying to do a good job. So... We don't know. There's a lot more going out there that we don't know about. We just hear the odd one here or there. Mm. Well, really fascinating research, Jackie, and it sounds like it's got a long way to go and um, be really interesting to hear back from you when, um, when the trial underway uh, has some, some conclusions from it. It's, um, thanks for being with us on Triple R. A pleasure. Uh, right now, there's a planning underway which will shape the future of Melbourne to 2026. But haven't we been here before? The answer is yes, and some of the ideas for Melbourne's future are on show now at the City Gallery. Uh, Claire Williamson is a curator of the exhibition A History of the Future, Imagining Melbourne, and it looks back over the numerous plans for Melbourne dating back about 180 years. And uh, Dr Dave Nichols is with us as well. He's here monthly on The Grapevine, and he's an urban planning historian. And uh, I, I really did like... Um, welcome, both of you, of course. Um, Thank you. And uh, I really did like in the exhibition in the City Gallery, Claire, that the quote from Graham Davidson, nothing seems to date as fast as our dreams of tomorrow and isn't it true? <laughs> Absolutely, it um, can be a bit surprising when we look back at some of this material to think that that's um, how people were thinking of this city at that time and place. So um, there was visions of, of spaceships and lakes and uh, maybe tell us some of the, the, the great ideas that didn't actually eventuate. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to kind of, thinking about our, our city, sometimes we kind of um, tend to sort of forget that the city that we have now is really an inheritance, really, of some of the ideas and the thinking of the people who have gone before us. And uh, one of the earliest examples in the exhibition is from 1860, so very early when... Um, John Miller uh, was a, um, an engineer and a, and a planner and he wanted to um, propose a, a canal to be uh, dug through the soil from Port Melbourne up to the city and have a, a turning basin up there. But what struck me about the, um, the map that he devised was this new suburb just to the west of the, the CBD where there's um, Britannia Crescent and within that is um, a lake with uh, ornamental islands in the shape of the British Isles. So it's really kind of reflecting I guess how we saw ourselves at that time and um, positioning ourselves uh, within the world. And there's um, I mean some amazing kind of images and sketches as part of this including um, a large kind of handscapes uh, hand-shaped skyscraper um, which was kind of going to be on the outskirts of the city I think and, and you know looked incredibly ugly yeah, <laughs> images um, I've seen and spaceships and I mean these sorts of ideas were, were they serious? Were they, were they serious look, proposals? Some, some were more serious than, than others. That, um, that hand-shaped monument was part of a competition in 1978 that the state government was um, I think very conscious of the fact that the um, the Sydney Opera House had opened a few years before. You know, Sydney had these 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 monuments, and Melbourne felt a little bit uh, lacking. So they had a public competition, and 
They had about 2,000 entries and the, the, all those entries now live at the Public Record Office, Victoria, and that's who we access the, these images from. And I didn't choose the most bizarre. Like some of them were... Uh, there was advertised internationally, so there were architects from across the, the USA, Japan, but as well as Mrs Kafoops of Glen Waverley. It was in the local papers here. Anyone could kind of submit their ideas. So there were kangaroos with spinning heads or a large cricket wicket where the ball was like the lift going up and down the... The, the cricket wicket um, but we've, we show one of the examples of this large hand and they were all to go um, fairly much sort of where Birrarung Mar in Federation Square mm. is now so it was about covering the railway yards and putting a, a monument there and uh, the large hand was designed by somebody from the USA I doubt that they would have been to Melbourne before um, and there's a little image that shows it to, to scale as like, it would have been incredibly tall within the skyline and you can see in the detail that there's uh, an ob- observation deck in the, the glass fingernail, just to give you a sense of the, the size of it. <laughs> yeah, and it's, um, I mean, it's the ultimate for a hand model, really, isn't it? <laughs> but were you aware, aware of the competition, Dave? Like, that, oh, Look, at the you know time? what, I remember. Yes, I remember, I mean, I was 13, but I remember it happening. My memory is um, that there was, there was a lot of support for a big football but and I guess that was at a time when you know Victoria and AFL, you know Aussie rules were really seen as synonymous. I guess mm-hmm. as, to a certain degree they still are. So that was. It, but yeah, it was definitely about Melbourne differentiating itself and making itself special in Australia and to the world. So what's Melbourne got? Uh, the big hand. Wonderful as it is, doesn't quite, you know, I mean, everyone's got hands everywhere, so I'm not sure that that really would have worked. I'm actually surprised we don't have a big football. We've got a big Slurpee, a big pineapple, a big banana, everything else. Not, not in Melbourne, though. No. Dylan, no. Um, <laughs> I know, we need a big football. You're right. Do you think the campaign starts here? For oh, well, the big, big football, 21st well century? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, okay. Get but, the uh, but instead, instead of getting an iconic building in, of that kind, we ended up with what incremental change and 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 gradual improvement rather than something kind of big and a big statement. Remember, I mean, the one thing that I would say about that is what we have is Fed Square, which is with and there's, you know, I mean, Claire, the exhibition is wonderful, and I urge everyone Thank to you. go and see it. There's, um, but you know, I, I, I wish you had four more rooms Absolutely. because there's so much. I'm sure you do too, mm. but the. Um, when you think about the moves towards a city square, which has been it's been a thing in Melbourne for I don't know, 150 years, Melbourne was originally designed without any particular large open space because you know that was seen as a bit of a, a waste. You know they wanted to maximise their sales, so we didn't get a city square until we got the city square in the late 70s, which was sort of seen as a bit of a false start. And then we got Fed Square, which was an instant success. But if that hadn't have happened, that would be part of the exhibition. would be like, oh, Melbourne's been trying to get a city square. It's never, never happened. You know, why don't we have a city square? But we did get one. And we do have Swanston Street as a, a walk with trams down it and delivery trucks, but it is a more pedestrian space than other, many other streets in the city. And in the exhibition, you show uh, Swanston Street covered in turf. Mm. And um, that was when in the in the mid 80s that we had that sort of yeah. vision or idea for for a walk in that space yes it's a, a great photograph by robert saget called um lawn at dawn and it's actually showing swanston street 
just as the sun's rising, um, in 1985, and it was for a weekend as part of Victoria's 150th celebration. So it was kind of a centrepiece for a big weekend-long party in February of that year. And they basically uh, trucked in and laid this um, actual grass all the way from uh, Flinders Street up to Lonsdale Street and brought in lots of mature trees in tubs as well. So we look at that photo now and we're used to seeing the trees down Swanson Street. But in 1985, that street was very choked with uh, traffic and heavy trucks um, coming through. And so I think it was a really pivotal moment in a way where it was incredibly successful people picnicked and danced and you know just hung out in this um in this space right in the cbd and i think it was very much a precursor both to the um, closing of swanston street in 92 but also that general kind of idea about greening the city bringing the the trees in trying to kind of make the the cbd area more pedestrian friendly whereas in the past a lot of the earlier designs that you see are about sort of getting the pedestrians out of the way it's sort of you know like underpasses and overpasses and things rather than and um you know, making it flow better for the traffic. But now I think that's really turned around. And uh, your comment before, too, about those sort of subtle shifts, I think that is something that... um that Melbourne is so good at and rather than having this kind of big monument or heroic kind of um, landmark as the answer, it's about all those subtle little kind of shifts in terms of how we how we move through the city. Now, I also like the idea that, uh, you know, following the, the Opera House being built in Sydney that, that Melbourne had a bit of icon envy. And I wonder, do you think we're over that, Dave, or do you think we're still looking for something iconic in, in Melbourne? But we, yeah, well, I think we've... You know, we've kind of devolved to um, to thinking about Melbourne as kind of a cultural, you know, people-focused, you know, not one big, um, you know, crazy gargantuan thing. But, you know, we had um, the... We've got the arts centre kind of stuff, which has, has a frisson of that, and I... I guess it came, started to come into being before the Opera House and it was completed after this. So we sort of have it. I think in some ways we don't really notice it, but it's, but it's there. There's, there's some really interesting newspaper coverage in the late 60s of the, the tower on top of uh, the, the art centre that, um, you know, is all about like a, a mini Eiffel Tower kind of idea, which, you know, when you look at it in that way, it, it kind of is. I mean, it has that sort of focus to it. But, yeah, I mean, nobody, you know, people around the world don't recognise the spire on top of the art centre as a, uh, and, you know, a lot of people at home probably don't even know what I'm talking about, but it is there. <laughs> well, originally it was going to be a lot taller mm-hmm. too. So mm-hmm. the, the, yeah. the original idea was going to be a copper-clad, much taller spire. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it may have been a bit more Eiffel Tower-esque. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of easy to laugh at some of these ideas, such as the giant hand and the sketches with kind of spaceships landing on pods throughout Melbourne and so on. But um, are there sort of many examples to your knowledge of those sorts of um, bold and kind of out there projects that actually came to fruition that didn't really work and perhaps don't exist anymore? Are there any examples of that throughout Melbourne's history to your knowledge? Um, I'm just trying to think. In some ways in the exhibition we do show things that happened um, and because it's about just sort of looking back at how we've kind of looked ahead at, at different times. So, for example, around the time of the 56 Olympic Games, the lead-up to that, Melbourne was very much looking at itself and wanting to present itself as a, a future 
you know, forward-looking city. So we sh- uh, we've got images for things like the um, Olympic pool that has since been demolished, sadly, but, um, you know, it was very adventurous architecture at that mm. time, very sort of futuristic. Um, and... Um, yeah, so I guess there's a, that, that sort of mix of um, things that have gone ahead or not, things that were sort of um, more outlandish than others. And even, I guess, I mean, Federation Square was quite um, controversial early on as well, but it seems to have become part of the landscape and, and I think most people would accept that it's, um, you know, a fixture of Melbourne now. Fed Square was, I don't know if anyone remembers this uh, the way I remember it, but my memory is that everybody thought Fed Square was going to be a total disaster until, like, you know, two weeks after it opened, suddenly everybody was was flocking there and it was huge. But, you know, in, in terms of, like, big landmark buildings, think about things like the Shrine of Remembrance, which is, you know, obviously there. And once again, it's uh, it's totally, um, you know, we know it, we, we're so familiar with it, we don't even think about it. But it's, you know, mountains were moved virtually to, uh, to give that thing a, a sort of landmark significance. They rerouted St Kilda Road. They did all kinds of things so that you can see that down Swanson Street and it's a, you know, it's, it's a constant uh, presence in our lives and, and it's all about, you know, uh, it has a kind of a, a nation, a national significance element to it. It's, you know, never forget the, the sacrifice, all that kind of stuff, which is... Um, you know, it's just a, it's a huge part of Melbourne in a sense. But once again, it's kind of, it's, it's every day. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's become a reality and it's just there. But once again, you know, if that hadn't happened, that would be part of the exhibition too. All the, you know, the crazy idea of like putting a, a shrine at the end of Swanson <laughs> Street and, you know. Have to protect sight lines in every direction. Mm-hmm. It's 27 minutes to 10 here. We're talking about a history of the future, imagining Melbourne. It's an exhibition on at the City Gallery. It's a really great exhibition. You can just pop by if you're on Swanson Street and, and, and have a look through. And we've got the curator, Claire Williamson, with us and also Dr Dave Nichols. And I wonder if anyone got it right, Claire, that... Um, predicting the way Melbourne would look now because this is actually part of a planning for the future process for the City of Melbourne. We've got one underway at the moment um, sort of envisaging the way the city is going to change and and evolve over the next 10 years. Um, Did anyone pick the city that we've got now in any of the imaginings? Um, well, I think it's it's a good point that you're raising about um, the context for this exhibition at the moment, that um, the, the City of Melbourne is very engaged in a project called Future Melbourne 2026, and they've been inviting the public to submit their ideas for how they, how they see the city developing. And, look, I don't work for the City of Melbourne, but I think in terms of who has predicted the, the city, I think going back to the 90s, the way that, that the city itself has determined a lot of how the that that city how the city operates through things like the postcode 3000 project how you know activating the laneways getting the you know the cafe culture and things happening and the like yeah exactly so i think um yeah they're, they're the ones that come to mind i guess in terms of how that the city we have now and and where that's come from and do you think um, having input into a planning process will actually um make a difference like i know we let you know artists loose in 1978 to imagine the future i mean why not do that again but do you think that it can push melbourne to to change if we actually engage in the process dave well i guess that's the that's the issue that planning always has to face is how to engage everyday people in you know in the whole thing and get some kind of you know mass consideration understanding um engagement with 
with the possibilities and you know the realities of the of the possibilities so it's um you know in in a way that the 1978 competition is, that stuff is so fabulous and it's it's great and it's hilarious and you know and i think it's but it's also you know really exciting in a way to see what the kinds of things that people will come up with and really interesting but um but also you know when when people you know if people are all just get uh, totally over involved in the idea of a giant football or whatever then then we lose you know track of of how people will actually use the city on an everyday basis i mean in some ways when you look at melbourne and you know i think i think claire um remarked on this uh in a in a way the the way that melbourne was in let's say the 80s or the even the 90s it's so much improved in the last 30 of 30 or 40 years in uh in terms of usability and and you know things to do there things to do after you know noon on a saturday um and and in the evenings of weekdays and so on there's um the city has just come leaps and bounds in the last few decades partly because you know we've had we've had a range of committed i'm thinking particularly of um uh, people who were involved in the Kane Labor government in the uh, in the 80s, who were were very very committed to the idea of you know community involvement and and getting people into the city, uh, and you know I think that we're seeing kind of the legacy of that now, and also you know and people who've come since and and current uh, current planners and and people currently involved, uh, I see it as coming from that that ideal that was put forward you know 30 something years ago. Um, I guess what I'd say in short is. We kind of have a great Melbourne now that's, you know, so much better than it, than it was uh, some time ago through that kind of imaginative uh, approach. I'm just thinking too about um, when you were saying about when people have uh, had that sort of input, like the 2026 um, project, there's a newspaper in the exhibition from um, 1953 called Future Melbourne. So, you know, quite an early example of planners wanting to engage a broader community. And that was a free newspaper that you could collect at the State Library. It was then called the Melbourne Public Library and they had a big exhibition that was a, a lead-up to that, that major plan in 1954 that was sort of the, the first kind of um, overall kind of conceiving, do you think, and sort of zoning of the city and... Um, it was the first successful right. plan for, yeah, yeah. yeah. First um, applied plan, yeah. Mm. So there's mm. certainly been times in the past where there's been that desire to kind of engage with a, a broad community. Mm. Well, I urge people to, to check out the exhibition. It's on at the City Gallery until August, so you've got heaps of time and, and um, if you've got great ideas why not put them forward um, to the future Melbourne process um, that which is underway at the moment and it's really great to have you in, Claire and thanks for coming to Triple R and we'll see you in a month, Dave. Yep. Sure. Anya, welcome and thanks for making the massive trek out from um, Port Ferry this morning. <laughs> Lovely. Thanks for having me in. Do you enjoy long trips <laughs> <laughs> um, probably not as much as I get used to them now you know the, in those the distances obviously in Australia are much bigger than to where I'm from in Ireland and you kind of get into a meditative state over here I think <laughs> and do, you, do you do it by car or you're a train user or what's um, well this morning I came up by train but normally I, I travel in a in big bus I have a 1966 Bedford bus which I tour in wow um, so everything is really slow you know you add two three hours onto anything that you're doing i love those bedfords though <laughs> and you have to go slow which means like you 
take in a lot more. You have to stop for breaks and let the engine cool down. And, you know, <laughs> there's just like no rushing anywhere. It's been a great lesson in life for me, that bus. <laughs> Do you, um, I mean, living in Port Ferry, you'd, you'd sort of, ne- I mean, there's a lot of venues around there, of course, mm. but you'd need to travel a fair bit to, yeah. to play shows all around Australia. Yeah. I, I actually find Port Ferry is kind of where I go to not do that thing mm. you know I, I do some local shows down there every now and then but it's more kind of yeah when when I'm away from it all down there it is a fair distance from everywhere but it's the place I felt most at home in Australia you know it's very like Ireland down there <laughs> so you know you got to find those places and make it work <laughs> so when I go on like a leave there i go for a few shows at a time rather than just gone you know up and down the highway for Mm -hmm. one show (laughs) (laughs) and um, i understand in uh the process of recording and writing songs for queen of swords you went sort of into the australian desert is that right Yeah. yeah we took the bus um out to the desert in what um wasn't really planned as a big journey we just kind of wanted to record um, in a way that I was really comfortable and, and we ended up just, my producer said let's go to the desert and I had never seen anything or been anywhere like that I'd always lived very coastal so it was just kind of this um, mad idea that really worked because <laughs> we got out there and we just um, we recorded for about nine days out um, the Udnadada track and William Creek and up Cooper PD and we let the road sort of guide where we went and it ended up being a pretty epic journey um, both like physically but then um, you know internally and emotionally it just all, all sort of came into this little album at the end. Which it's, a, it's an amazing area. I, I, I know a lot of people that yeah. find Cooper PD in particular because it's a crazy town it's crazy. <laughs> um, but find it really inspiring yeah. in, in lots of ways because it's just so unusual. It's very unique very as a place. Unique, yeah. And we rolled in there and I kind of got that creepy, weird feeling of the place and I was like, oh, this really isn't what we've just come from, you know? <laughs> like we were like recording in the desert out in the like sunsets and then we rolled in there and it was just r- like there were people fighting in the streets. The place was just like b- b- crazy. But then we ended up finding these old abandoned open mines and this guy just gave us these mines for the night to record for a couple of days and it just ended up being this amazing, you know, once you get underneath the surface of lots of places you find you know the real beauty and cooperpedia is definitely one of those like very inspiring underneath the craziness that appears on the outside (laughs) and what was that like kind of um i mean going with the flow i suppose in in recording an album because often people will spend a lot of time meticulously planning where they record how they do it um partly i suppose because it can cost quite a bit of money Mm. but what was that like kind of doing that on on the fly and and looking for a place to to inform that process it it was amazing because we actually had to let go of any preconceived notions of what we wanted to do and just let the road inspire us and my producer I was lucky enough just an amazing producer friend and engineer Mark Stanley who was all for it and so we just made a pact we brought a um, someone to video it and we brought another driver with us and we just made a pact that if the four of us got a good vibe from a place we'd stay there and if we didn't we'd keep rolling and and we went with those sort of gut in- instincts and when you follow those gut instincts in life 
like amazing things always happen don't they so it was kind of like you know just a big realization of that <laughs> so is it recorded a lot outside is it yeah a lot yeah most of it's outside or in mines or you know and then the end of the the very end of our journey when we had to kind of put all the pieces back together of the album of what we had recorded out in the desert we ended up going to St Bridget's Hall which is down in um outside of Port Ferry and that's before I was sort of based there and we used um we used this real traditional Irish hall. <laughs> well, we've heard a lot about St Bridges because um, Shane Howard and yeah. and mm. others, a whole lot of um, people got together um, uh, to save that yeah. and keep it for the community. I think actually Roach was involved yeah. with that campaign and others. So yeah. that's um, so you recorded there. That's so then we finished, uh, we brought all the bits of the desert sort of back to this like very Irish place <laughs> in Victoria, which just, and a lot of, like Shane recorded on the album and a lot of other Irish. Um, musicians that are down around that part all put their pieces onto it and sort of it was just really um, yeah but I I think if I had set out to plan that it never would have happened (laughs) (laughs) yeah catching him at home must be a challenge too (laughs) people are busy and travel a lot and and it is um, it's interesting you describe it as a very Irish part of Victoria because it absolutely is you drive through some of those towns and um, Mm. you can really see the the influence of Irish migration Mm. there Mm. Um, and uh, you're from Galway originally on the west coast of Ireland and if there's a place that I've found most similar to Galway it's probably Port Ferry did you did you find that as well Yeah, I had been down to visit it once or twice, visiting Shane and um, visiting um, some Irish festivals that happened down there. And every single time I went down, I was like, wow, even the stone walls, like, (laughs) and the the way people are down there, it's just very, very Irish. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and very kind of west coast of Ireland as well, in particular, you know, where I'm from. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had family out recently in February, and um, they just were blown away when they got down there because <laughs> they were just like, well, what is this? There's Irish flags everywhere. There's, like, they thought I'd put the flags out just for them. I was like, no, this is all the time. <laughs> yeah. In the course of all, all that travelling um, mm. to record the album, did the bus hold up? No, no, it didn't. <laughs> of course, it broke down. <laughs> yeah. And it broke down on the Nadada track, kind of when we hadn't passed a car for nine hours and sort of um, just, uh, I don't know, I, I have no idea how we ended up getting it back going. And, you know, we lost, one of the doors fell off and then we came to the next town and there was a welder who happened to be like passing through and he put the door back on and it was just sort of, you know... <laughs> um, road trips I mean they're always like that aren't they but it's kind of road trips on steroids when you're trying to record an album at the same time there we go <laughs> I'm really interested in um, your relationship with, with Euromore because uh, you say you started um, your first gig with him was during NADOC week and yeah. we're in Reconciliation Week now yeah. and um, I know he did a, an amazing gig over the weekend as well and I wonder are, are you feeling connected not just with Euromore but also to to the kind of um, indigenous Australian music and, uh, and that definitely yeah I, I think one of the first times I heard um, I heard about East Journey from Arnhem Land and they come into a school I was working at and they did um, showed some of their cultural dances and some of the songs and you know they're the oldest living um, tradition in the, in the world and I just thought you know my mind was 
blown by by that and and I suppose then having traveled out to some of those outback places and seeing the vastness of the land here and, and the amazing landscapes and the difference you know I mean Australia is just incredible with what you can see in in, in different places and different people and um, uh, yeah I felt very connected to the land here after after that which is so different to the land in Ireland you know like the desert versus like Irish green rolling hills <laughs> they just don't match up very <laughs> very much but yeah and then having um, done some shows with Yermal and, and I've both Yermal and myself have done mentorships with um, with Shane Howard and he's worked with both of us and, and I think the connections that run deep in, in the tradition from which I come from and um, and wanting to honour those traditions but also have a contemporary um, new uh, approach to it to make it something that people our age can still relate to. Yermal has that in in spades you know he's just like he's got this extremely you know earthing um very deep connection to his land and his people and and it just comes straight from the heart when he sings and, and when i was sitting listening to Manara Rat the first time it's just yeah it was very emotional you know it just straight away you're I mean, both of you talked about having seen him as well. It's mm. a really uh, yeah, an amazing yeah. experience. That's right. Well, I um, I saw him at the uh, Emerge Multicultural Arts Festival probably about three years ago. Um, I mean, he's still so young, but he was, you know, three years younger then, mm. um, playing with the, the Yolnu boys at the Fitzroy Town Hall. And uh, they were playing, I think, a couple of Yothu Yindi songs. And there were scattering of, of people kind of moving in and out of the room initially. But then when he started, people just flooded in and didn't leave until he sang his last note. It was just incredible people were transfixed mm. and so do you play separate sets or do you play t- together when when you gig together um yeah. so yeah we'll both be doing separate sets and then we're coming together for for a few um for a few pieces together which is great and, and a few um traditional irish musicians from um up here in melbourne are joining as well and and that's where i come from is a traditional irish background and so i think um what Yermal and I bring together is that sort of um, yeah that that earthing and culture that is sometimes y- you don't feel when you're walking around you know and I think Ireland has it very strong and, that, and that's where I've come from and I found it hard moving to Australia because you don't see it you don't feel it when you're you have to really go look for it here to find those cultural anchors here mm. yeah, and do you and do you have a, a musical family or that sort of yeah. interest through your family yeah so i my dad's a musician he's still touring at the age of 73 wow. around the world <laughs> yeah he was out here for we did a show in um called exile which was in the um, melbourne art center a couple months back in february with shane howard and paul kelly and um a few other artists about the irish australian um story and that was incredible because it was sort of bringing together the irish um culture that's influenced australia you know and and the songs that have come from that and and um yeah it was a beautiful experience but yeah that's how i grew up just playing music singing songs and i play tin whistles and flutes and all of that so (laughs) and that um, i mean that sort of storytelling tradition it's so strong you know Mm. and i'd spent seven months there about well eight or nine years ago now and um it's really present in the different sort of places you go to in in my experience have you experienced that as well in ireland have you seen that change at all or 
it doesn't remain a very constant yeah. um, kind of cultural tradition for, for people there. Yeah, I mean, st- stories are... Yeah, they're they're everything in Ireland, and, mm. and, and I mean passed down. Um, songs were similar to um, Indigenous Australia. The song lines. I mean, we would have similar songs that are passed down, and they're the stories of your grandmother, or your great grandparents, or your you know whatever of the local area, and they're traditional to those places, similar to what you have here. And so, um, stories and and through song is the way that that those traditions can continue and have continued for so long yeah thank you very much Thanks for coming in for having me and may your bedford live for another day yes <laughs> <laughs> lovely to meet you lovely you've been listening to a podcast from australia's best known community radio station three triple r 102.7 in melbourne for more podcasts information about upcoming events and our live stream please visit our website at rrr.org.au